Welcome to DLA Piper's Many Voices, One Community. In this episode, DLA Piper's Kim Askew, Lock Lord's Paulette Brown, and Zuber Lawler's Eileen Letts discuss a report by the American Bar Association, Left Out and Left Behind, the hurdles, hassles, and heartaches of achieving long-term legal careers for women of color. DLA Piper is proud to be a sponsor of the American Bar Association World Forum for Women in the Law, which will be held later this month on January 27th through 29th. Paulette Brown, one of our speakers today, is the co-chair of the World Forum, where one of the topics will be the very topic that we're going to be talking about, and that is women of color in the profession and their status. Another feature of that program, along with Paulette and her work, will be our other speaker, Eileen Letts, and they are two of the authors of a report that the American Bar Association released last year, Left Out and Left Behind, The Hurdles, Hassles, and Heartaches of Achieving Long-Term Legal Careers for Women of Color. And of course, Paulette Brown, as well as Eileen Latz, have been very active on issues of diversity, inclusion, and equality. I have worked with them and known them since the ABA released its foundational report on the study of women of color in the legal profession, Visible Invisibility. Many of you know Paulette Brown. She is a senior partner. Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Lock Lord. She's a past president of the American Bar Association, where she worked on many issues involving diversity and inclusion. And I remember sitting in the house when we worked on one of her signature diversity issues that year. She is unquestionably one of the most influential lawyers in America, and is known for her pioneering work in diversity and inclusion. Eileen Lutz is a partner at Zuber Lawler. She is one of the prominent trial lawyers in our country. Eileen and I have worked for many years in the ABA section of litigation. Eileen does high-stakes litigation around the country. She has been active in the American Bar Association and, of course, the Chicago Bar. She has co-chaired the ABA Commission on Diversity and Inclusion, worked with the ABA Commission on Women, and is quite knowledgeable of so many issues involving women of color in our profession. So we are so pleased to have both Eileen and Paulette speak with us today. It is a real pleasure to talk with you and to our long-term friend Kim Askew about issues that are of extreme importance, particularly to women of color in law. As Kim mentioned, the American Bar Association through the Commission on Women is holding the first ever World Forum on Women in Law later this month, January 27th to 29th. And if you have not registered, I encourage you to do so. In addition to the fabulous speakers and programming that will take place, you will also be able to get about 12 CLE credits. 
And there'll be some additional wonderful activities that will occur as well. Great effort through the planning committee and through the ABA professionals on the ground, Stephanie Schaaf, Bobby Liebenberg, who are also co-chairs of the World Forum, have done a tremendous job in securing speakers from all walks of life, really some high-profile people who will be speaking at this conference. And as Kim mentioned, DLA Piper is a sponsor, and we thank them for that. And my firm is a sponsor as well, Lock Lord, and I thank them for that. But primarily, I think what we're here today in particular to talk about is the report that Eileen Letts and I had the privilege of co-authoring, and that is Left Out and Left Behind, The Heartaches of Achieving Long-Term Legal Careers for Women of Color in the Legal Profession. Some of you may know, or it's been widely publicized, when Hillary Bass was president of the American Bar Association, one of her signature initiatives was to study long-term careers of women in law, looking at why women are leaving in incredible numbers at a point in time in which one would think that they would be thriving or they would be just hitting their stride and found that they're leaving. Women over 50 who are well-established in their practice are actually leaving the practice of law and studying why that is the case. As she was rolling out that initiative and Bobby Liebenberg and Stephanie Sharp were actively involved in that process and were co-chairing that initiative. And I thought about the fact that, especially as it relates to litigation and trial work, I could probably name all of the women of color who were of my generation and perhaps a little younger than me who were still practicing law and who were still litigating and trying cases. And I figured that I should not be able to name all of them. And if I was able to name all of them, then that meant that for sure the experiences of women of color would be very different than the experiences of women overall with respect to achieving long-term careers of women in law. So I approached Bobby and Stephanie and said that there should be a parallel report to study the experiences of women of color. And they readily agreed. Both of them are well in tune to these sorts of issues concerning diversity and inclusion. And the first thing they said, well, of course, if we're going to do this, then you have to share the project. And I'm like, okay. So then Eileen, who had been the chair of my 360 commission, I asked her, would she co-chair with me? And of course she said, yes. So We embarked upon this research and Dr. Destiny Perry became our researcher and a very important component of what it is that we were trying to do. One of the things that occurred was that in the main report, in the primary study, the benchmark was 20 years of practice. We could not find a large group of people with 20 years of experience. So we lowered the experience level to 15 years. And even with that, it was very difficult to find not just women of color who had been practicing that long, but also who had the time and the commitment to participate in focus groups, which would take several hours to do, to learn about their experiences and so forth. Ultimately, we were able to get more than 100 people to participate, some through the in-person eight focus groups that we conducted, and then some with online surveys, which had the exact same questions that we asked people in focus groups. At the end of the day, our researcher, Dr. Destiny Perry, said that we had sufficient number of people 
to declare to be a valid study based on the total demographics of people of color and how many people there actually are. We were not able to do the same type of statistical analysis that the other report was able to do because we just didn't have the numbers. There just aren't a sufficient amount of women of color to draw the types of analogies that were done in the wider report. And that is in and of itself extremely telling. And in the sense that we have not made a lot of progress since the Visible Visibility Women of Color report in 2006, that we've got much work to do. There's so many systemic issues of bias that are built into so many things that we do. So what we wanted to do through this report is to have recommendations as to how we can disrupt some of those biases and create new systemic models and policies that will advance women of color. And Eileen, I know I've left out a lot, so I will let you summarize the report. Thank you, Kim. We've been longtime friends and allies in this effort and fight for equality, especially among women of color. And in doing the report, the results, I think we probably knew, but they were somewhat disturbing. Women of color consider more often than others of leaving the practice of law because of lack of respect, the lack of important work assignments, and isolation. However, they stay for several reasons. We found through the study that they have more family obligations. Many of them are the sole breadwinner, or they make more than their significant other. Also, many of them are the first in their family to reach this achievement. Many of them are first-time college graduates and then secondary school being law school to have achieved this goal. So they feel a higher level of responsibility to their family. And then we talk about also not only their internal responsibilities, their external responsibilities in terms of the community. They see themselves as helping others, that they're role models inside the firm and outside the firm. And one of the things that I know Paulette found very interesting, as she always explained about, is they stay because they love the law. Despite everything else that transpires within the practice of law, they stay because they love it. And they also, as I mentioned earlier, the financial needs cannot be overlooked, that they have other people that they have to support. And that's another reason they stay. They need the money. And it provides a sense of security that they might not otherwise have. We found, too, that women that are not diverse, there were some, I would say, strong distinctions between women of color and women that are not of color, that need to understand that diverse women are not necessarily a monolith, that there are differences within the different ethnicities that Hispanic women, African-American women, Asian women, Native American women do not all think the same, do not all feel the same, do not all have the same responsibilities and requirements. So those discussions also need to be had. Thank you both, Paulette and Eileen, for that introduction of Left Out and Left Behind. What I find so interesting about the findings that you just talked about is that these are very close to the findings that came out of the visible invisibility report from 2006. So it suggests that 14 years later, we have not made a lot of progress in the profession in addressing these issues. So one of the questions is, especially in a firm like DLA Piper, Lock Lord, Zubla Lawyer, these are leading firms in the profession. What can law firms do to 
address these issues? What are some of the structural changes that we need to look at and perhaps change it so that when we do another report 14 years from now, we've got some better progress to report on? Paulette? Yes. So thank you, Kim. And just so that people can be mindful of the statistics and how little or no progress has been made. Women of color still only comprise about a little less than 2% of all equity partners in law firms, for example. And African-American women, they comprise about 0.75%, not even 1% of equity partners. So what I think about is the fact that visible visibility focused on younger lawyers uh-huh. and the fact that 85% even after five years of practice, who is there left? to actually even become partners. So I think that there is a huge issue concerning retention. And there are recommendations that can be made, things that can be built in. When you treat diversity and inclusion efforts, a lot of times firms will call it one of the core values of the firm, but they don't have the same type of metrics. They don't have the same type of accountability. So just as you have accountability and consequences, for not achieving other goals in your organization. You have to establish those same types of goals so that they can be baked into your system so that you won't have the type of fluctuations and attrition that you continuously have in large firms. So for example, there are a number of different programs that can be implemented and to become a part of a policy. So if you say, for example, that your firm is going to have a sponsorship firm and every diverse lawyer will have a sponsor who is a member of the executive committee or who is a department head, and then those members who are sponsors, their success is determined by the success of the person who they are sponsoring, then I think that you will have much better retention rates because people will be actually invested in the people who are already there within the organization. But I think that if you don't have actual policies in place that will survive any person who is in leadership at the moment, then you will have that backsliding that you have in the back and forth and no real progress is being made. So one of the things that I think that is really important is that firms have written policies with accountability tools to go along with them to ensure that diversity and inclusion and the retention of diverse lawyers, women in particular, are set forth and become a part of the firm like any other policy. And just to tag on to that, another thing that we recommended is there needs to not just be diversity, and Paul had mentioned this, but there needs to be actual inclusion. You can't just look at the numbers and say, oh, well, our income in class is 10%, 20% women and 5% or 8% are women of color. And two years from now, they're gone or you've got another class of women and you wonder, well, what happened? Why is there no retention? Because they've not been included. You can't just say, here, I've got great numbers, but done nothing to make sure that they are really included in the organization. Make sure that they are going on pitches, that not only when they go on the pitches, that if and when the work comes in, that they work on those matters, that they have the conversations with the senior lawyers and other lawyers in the firm about the types of matters that they're working on so that they feel vested. Because if people don't feel vested, they're not going to stay. They're going to look for other opportunities and they're going to take those opportunities. And firms have to really work on making that happen. And most firms don't do that. And we found that that was another key 
recommendation that there has to be actual inclusion. To that point, it's really important, even though women of color don't hold a lot of leadership positions, it's not that they don't want them. One of the things that our research showed was that women of color actually seek promotion and leadership roles more than any other group of people, more than white women, more than white men. And yet they still don't hold the position of leadership, even though they seek them out at greater numbers and greater percentages than any other demographic. And also to add on what Eileen said about the marketing and the pitches and so forth, the other thing is origination credit. What kind of credit systems do these firms have? How do people get credit for bringing in a new line of business? And what happens with the institutional clients that the firm has, that they would not be able to continue to have these institutional clients, but for, because as we know, a lot of clients are looking for firms to improve their diversity. So when a new line of work comes in, even though the client has been a client of the firm for years, who is going to get credit for that new line of work? And so there has to be some policies and structures as it relates to origination fees and who's going to get credit. You've talked about diversity and inclusion. One of the other areas that we talk about today is equity. So can you talk a little bit about what equity means and how law firms can evaluate their employment practices as it relates to equity? Well, we talk about inclusion, we talk about diversity, but equity is making everybody knows everything equal. How do you achieve that? That goes back to one of the things that Paulette said about practices, structural changes within the firm. Things are much more easily evaluated if you have certain requirements, if you have certain things and certain goals that people must meet. That is what helps make things equitable. If you just allow people to be subjective and say, oh, I really like working with Paul because Paul's a great guy. He's got a great golf game and he does decent work. Paul's up for partner. But you've got Angela, who is a phenomenal lawyer, but she's not included in these conversations. And she doesn't have, as we mentioned earlier, as well, sponsors. Then she doesn't have people to speak up for her. So if you have written policies and procedures and things to evaluate individuals, women, men, people of color, everybody fairly, and everybody's held to the same standard, then that helps achieve equity. It may not totally achieve it, but it certainly is a way to make sure that when people look at things on a piece of paper objectively, that the same questions are being asked, the responses that are being given are looked at equally across all gender, ethnicity. So then you can evaluate people on a much more equitable basis. If I can, my good friend, I have a slightly different take. Go ahead, good friend. (laughs) (laughs) So I am troubled when people say that we treat everybody the same and therefore we are equal. And in some instances, you cannot treat everybody the same because it will not result in equity. So if you use a sports metaphor, for example, it's like we are inviting everyone to the football game. We're not excluding anybody from going to the football game. But my seat is on the 50th line. And your seat is in the rafters. That is not equity. That is equal, but it's not equity. And so when we talk about equity, 
we have to look at the different experiences of people so that when we have what we think may be an objective standard, is that objectivity really connected to the person who has not had the same advantages as someone else did? When we assume that everybody is in the same place at the exact same point in time, you cannot get an equitable result because, for example, if my father was an officer in the country club, which he could never have been, not even in the country club, and he had all of these various connections to people who could give me business, I have an advantage over someone who did not have that same experience. And so when you talk about equal, yes, we come there maybe with the same credentials and so forth, but I have a jump start on that person to get additional business. So we have to then provide tools for other people who don't have the same advantages to get them to a point where a situation is equitable. So I distinguish equal versus equitable because it's really not the same. You can have a standard, which you say is the same for everybody, but it's really not the same for everybody because everybody does not start at the same point. Doesn't mean they can't catch up, but everybody does not start at the same point. We have to recognize that everybody is not in the same place at the same time. So even when we do have objective standards, sometimes that cannot be enough. Well, I just have to make this one point to my dear friend. (laughs) I would not disagree, but I think that you probably have to have both because I don't think if you don't have some written requirements that people still can do whatever they want to do. I don't disagree with you, but I think that given your analogy of on the football field, I think that in those standards, it has to be that, yeah, Paul was on the 50 yard line and Angela was in the rafters. I think that has to be placed in there. So I don't disagree, but I personally think you need both. Oh, there has to be some standards. That's like in the evaluation process. You don't want to get rid of the evaluation process. You want to have objective standards in the evaluation process. You don't want to get rid of it. You just want to try to look to see whether these same standards apply equally to everybody. I agree with that. And I know that the two of you could go on and on with this discussion. And I'm just holding my tongue not getting in the middle of it. (laughs) We've had these discussions uh, many times before. Another area that I want to mention, because it is so critical with respect to women of color, and especially Black women, and that is an awareness of the importance of civic engagement and public service in the work that we do. What can law firms do to better understand how to recruit women of color in this regard, how to recognize and value the importance of the work that women of color are doing in society through pro bono efforts, civic efforts, diversity efforts. And that's a different discussion than we have sometimes when we are just talking about women in the profession. So Eileen, would you talk about that important issue as it relates to women of color? Well, I think that's one of the things too that the study found. And I think you're correct, although I'm certainly not discounting any other women of color, But I guess I can speak more because I am an African-American woman, Mm -hmm. more to that. And just having spoken with my friends and peers that 
responsibility weighs very heavily on us. I think it is partially because of a lot of our upbringings and the way we've been raised that we have seen so much social injustice directed to African-American people, which continues to this day. Even look at last week, which we won't, but in terms of what people have said about what would have happened to people of color versus what did not happen to others at the Capitol, that because we have experienced and seen so much social injustice and social unrest that it really weighs heavily on us. So when we are in the profession, many of us feel that that is an obligation and a responsibility that we have to not only work within the firm on helping others be treated equally, but outside the firm, that many of us are very involved in our ethnic bar associations, in our churches, in other civic organizations, because it is an important value and a value system that has been instilled in us from birth almost to do these things. And I think that firms, some do, some don't, have an appreciation for that, but I do think they have to be educated to see what the value is to the firm and to that individual, particularly, that those values need to be valued. They need to be supported. They need to be validated because it is part of who we are, part of the way we've been raised. And I think those things are very important to each of us on the phone and to many other women of color. I completely agree with that. There is an obligation that we have to do those types of things. And I think that especially, and in addition to what Eileen said, it is those types of organizations that we belong to. That is also many times a source for where we get our work referrals through those various organizations. And I think that to the extent that firms start to have a recognition of the importance and the value to women of color and African-American women participating in those organizations, it would go a long way in retention efforts in how people feel from a morale standpoint, et cetera. And especially now, all that has transpired, it's even more important for us to become involved in social justice issues, racial justice issues. They are more important than ever. And quite frankly, our clients are interested in us being more involved and more active in these organizations. So I think that there has to be a recognition of not just the need to belong and to actively participate in these various activities, but also have an understanding and appreciation of the additional stress that's visited upon uh, women of color and African-American women and African-descended women in particular would go a long way in the retention efforts and not only in the retention efforts, but also in the recruitment efforts. Because when People who are in law schools, for example, and people even in college and in high school, they are looking to see what or how successful you are, what it is that you are able to engage in, because sometimes we can't find community within the law firm. We have to find community outside of the organization that we're in, or at least we have to find additional community because we can't get everything that we need because we can't always bring our authentic selves to the organization. So we have to, in order to maintain our sanity in a way, we have to participate in these other organizations, people who are of like minds and like goals, et cetera. Not to say that law firms don't have some of the like goals, et cetera, 
but I think that anyone can ever walk in your shoes. Only you can walk in your shoes. So nobody else can have a real full appreciation of what it is that you're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And that's why I think that it's really important for law firms to have an understanding of those things and what it is you need to do. They need to have some empathy regarding that. Law firms are hesitant to discuss issues of systemic racism directly because that is the issue that we must confront if we are going to truly address some of the barriers and issues that you have talked about as it relates to women of color? I think absolutely law firms have to be willing to confront it, but they have to be willing to listen. I think that's the first point. It's one thing to have a forum and have everybody come to the forum and let's have a lovely discussion about race and how things should be better and how we need to improve things and rah, rah, yes, we believe in all of that. But is that really listening? Not necessarily. You've got to be able to know that you can have a frank conversation. And that's not always easy to do because sometimes people that say they want to hear the truth don't want to hear it. They don't want to discuss it. They don't want to have any really solid recommendations because that will cause them to become vested in it, to really, really accept that there are problems other than just as my father always loved to say, lip service to something, (laughs) that they really have to be willing to sit down at a table and listen to people honestly. And I think that is the first step. And I think that is a very difficult step for many law firms and law firm leadership to undertake. And what recommendations or advice would you give, especially someone who has a very important role like yours, Paulette, as Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for your firm? We have that very important role in my firm. How do we begin to have those conversations where we're listening and we're hearing what those issues are? So, Kim, that's a very good question. And I think ongoing education is really important. One of the things that we did following George Floyd, et cetera, was that we did the 21-day challenge where we asked people to listen to various things, to read certain things, and with the understanding that You will not always agree with what you read and what you see and what you hear, but that it's extremely important to understand how an African-American, for example, is absorbing all of that. And not just to read it, but then to have discussions about it. So we had about 24 town hall meetings in my firm, where we talked about what it was that we read. And it's important to do that because there's so much that has not been taught in school. There's no civics education anymore. And the history books have been scrubbed. It has taken out many of the contributions that African-Americans have made and many of the abuses that African-Americans have suffered in this country. So there's just a lack of understanding And a lot of it from people in the North who thought that things like this did not happen to Black people. And I think that it has to be ongoing conversation, not just about race, but also about colorism, because there's a big deal about colorism and how people treat you based on your skin tone. And I think that people need to be constantly educated. So one of the things that we're doing is, although we have finished the 21-day challenge, on the 21st day, 
of every month, we are providing them with information on some aspect of racial justice and what things that they can do to help to interrupt some of the racism and just really to educate them, to have them understand what other people's experiences are, that they don't live in this little isolated bubble. Just because we're in a law firm with you and it's seeming like we are successful, we come with a lot of stress and we come with things that you have never experienced before. And I think that, as Eileen said, it's more than just hearing what it is you're saying. It's about real listening. It's about bringing people to the table while the meal is being served and not waiting for dessert to listen to what it is that's on their minds and what their experiences have been. And until such time as people are willing to do that and make no mistake, you're not going to get everybody on board and everybody's not going to agree with everything that you suggest that you reach them. And the point is not for them necessarily to agree to it or to be in line with it, but to have them understand it. Yes, these things did happen. Yes, these things continue to happen. And even with what happened on January 6th, there's so many differences in the way that peaceful Black protesters were treated versus how white rioters were treated. So we have to understand that there are the main differences with regard to what race you are in this country. And I think that people have to understand that and how that permeates through everything that we do, including in the work that we do in our firms. And it's just an ongoing educational process that we have to continue. Very important points are packed in there. I know we're getting to the end of the podcast and you're both very busy lawyers. Are there any summary points or recommendations that you would make to a law firm like ours as we continue to address issues of diversity, inclusion, and equality, especially as it relates to women of color? I certainly know that Paula probably will have some great ending points, so I'll just give a couple. I think that we can't say enough about listening. I will say that I have two very good friends, white women, who are in their 50s and 60s, who I consider to be very enlightened, very quote-unquote woke, who when they read the study, Left Out and Left Behind, were still shocked and amazed about the things that happened to women of color. And these are women that have much greater understanding and I would say empathy for other women. And I would say appreciate and respect women of color's concerns, but they were shocked by the findings. And if two very well-intentioned white women read a study and were shocked, I can only imagine, and I don't even need to imagine, how people who are not as enlightened and as engaged really see how things are in the country. So I think that elaborating on the earlier points that we really have to understand that people don't understand and some don't care. And as Paulette said, we can't bring everybody to the table to make them understand, but that we really have to start people at ground zero and expect that they don't have any real concept or understanding of what we as women of color have to go through and deal with in life. And I think that's where we start with law firms, (laughs) baby steps to really educate them from the very beginning and assume they know nothing and work from that platform. Because I think if we start there and try to help people, and I think the timing now, unfortunately, the way things are in the country, but I do think that there are a lot of people that eyes have been opened 
as we discussed January 6th, when many of the news commentators, many of them have all expressly said, white commentators, how black people would have been treated differently. And I do think that this is a good opportunity, unfortunate opportunity, to help open some eyes of people that have been colorblind in the past or so they thought. So I just think that the timing is such that we need to really have these frank conversations now because I do think that a lot more people are open to listening and being educated on the disparities of people of color and particularly women of color in the country. Ali, you made an excellent point about just assuming that people don't have any information. And you really do have to start from there because people live in their own little worlds, in their own little bubbles. And most people think that because it doesn't affect me directly, it does not affect me at all. And I think that we have to get away from that notion and think more in terms of teams and communities. I also think that in the educational process, when you're talking about issues of race, when you're talking about issues of diversity and inclusion, generally speaking, it is not something that sticks with you. So it is a message that has to be repeated over and over and over again. And sometimes it may seem to be exhausting, but we can't be exhausted in this process. We have to continue to deliver the message of being inclusive and making sure that we have environments where people have a sense of belonging and that they know that they will be treated equitably. And we have to also make sure that we have accountability measures. What is it that we're going to do? Are people going to be able to be elevated into partnership if they haven't done anything to promote diversity and inclusion, if they have not taken another diverse person under their wing and taught them the ropes, the ins and outs, the things that they don't write on paper about what's going on in the firm? Are we going to not give as much compensation to a partner who has done nothing to promote diversity and inclusion, who has refused to sponsor a diverse lawyer in the firm. What are the consequences for not pushing this forward? And so, again, I go back to my issue of establishing policies. Does it become a part of the evaluation process for all lawyers and all directors on the staff side and all managers on the staff side? What are the kinds of things? Are we going to have a rule where we require the people who do the lateral recruiting for us to ensure that they send us diverse candidates, that we reject any slate of candidates that they send us that does not include diverse people. And one of the other things I want to say is that people should always be mindful of the fact that even among women of color, we are not a monolith, that there are different issues that present different experiences that we have that are different one from the other. And I think that we have to understand that where there are some things that are universal to all of us, there are some things that are quite distinct and different in the way that we are perceived. So I think that it's important for legal organizations not to just look at women of color as one umbrella, but look at each person, at each group of people and see how it is that we're treating them. Whether we have high standards for one group of people, whether we believe that they're good in certain areas, and whether we believe that other people cannot excel in particular areas just because of the particular ethnic or racial group in which they belong. So I think that it's important to have strong, solid policies that will live beyond whoever is currently in leadership. 
I think that you have to have either rewards and or consequences for people who are not on board with this. And I think that you have to have real measurable tools to determine how it is that you do it. All excellent recommendations. We so appreciate all of the meaningful information that you've given us today. And it really makes me excited about the ABA World Forum for Women in the Law that's about to take place and the discussions that I know we will have there. And of course, Eileen Letts, Paulette Brown, we thank you for your overall leadership in the profession and especially on these important issues involving women of color. And of course, DLA Piper is very happy to be one of the co-sponsors of the World Forum and we look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Kim, and thank you, DLA Piper. I enjoyed it. I did too, it was great. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Many Voices, One Community. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP U.S., The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast.